0: create some space and then figure out how you can reintegrate things that you enjoy and then see how you feel a couple of weeks later. And luckily what happens is that nine times out of 10, you'll start to see this upward spiral like, oh, wow. Okay. So if I actually time block and create these transition rituals, I'm getting more done during the day and I'm actually enjoying myself once work is done. Let's keep playing with this.
1: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. This show is meant to be a guide for you. We're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on this show, every single episode, I wanna be your friend, I wanna be your mentor, I wanna show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to Manifest with Kathy Heller. We are going to have such a great conversation today. Mike Rucker is here. Before we dive in, I just want to say thank you so much. If you were listening to the podcast the last couple of weeks, or if you joined us for the live sessions we did in the workshop, it was just such cool energy to have that time with you guys. I love when we do that live interactive stuff because I really get a chance to connect with you, which is so much fun. Um, so doors are now officially closed to the program, Abundant Ever After. But we do have a retreat coming up, June 25th through the 27th in Florida. It's going to be amazing. Sarah Platt Finger from Deepak Chopra's Chopra is going to be there to lead us in yoga. We're going to be doing meditations every day. We're going to have a Reiki session. My hypnotherapist is going to fly in and do a session with us. It's going to be amazing. Kate Northrup is going to speak. It's going to be so much fun and we'll be on the ocean and really manifesting in such a giant way. If you want to join me, you can go to kathyheller.com retreat. I believe we have 10 spots left. So today, the brilliant Mike Rucker is here. He is an organizational psychologist and behavioral scientist. He's an author, a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, and he's the creator of The Fun Habit, which is an action-based approach that helps you invite more fun and joy into your life. It impacted so many people that he wrote a book about it earlier this year. It's called The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. And it's all about how to make fun and effortless habits so that it can become a part of your life and why this habit will help you become a healthier, more joyful, more productive person. It's an incredible read. So please do yourself a favor and get a copy. It was so interesting to hear the science and psychology around having this fun approach to your life, like making fun a practice. And I wish that we wouldn't lose our sense of joy and wonder as adults. It's so reassuring to know that we can find a way to bring it back and that it actually makes us more productive people. Mike has so many good things to say. I'm so excited for you to hear this. So let's dive in. Without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Mike Rucker. Mike, I'm so happy to meet you. Uh, before we officially started, I told you that I get all these books from different publicists and your book came and I was like, this makes me happy immediately. I love that somebody took the time to research and create a book that helps people enjoy their life more. I was like, this is so important. So, so thank you for the work you're doing.
0: Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind. You know, I think it's interesting. The book's been out a little bit now, but picking up on the zeitgeist of pain, I think, you know, we were all sort of prescribed, you know, this pursuit of happiness and there's been various waves of these things happen, right? You know, hustle porn is a thing, what they call it, fitspo, you know, in the fitness space. And so when you're kind of always chasing a carrot, but then not really living in the moment that, you know, becomes quite problematic. And so, I think that's why it's kind of hitting now because people, they're always sort of chasing and not really living where their feet are, right?
1: Oh my God. Well, what you just said was really, really cool. You kind of reminded me of all these like buckets, but it's like kind of putting your ladder on the wrong wall. Like it doesn't get you there because in the end we're so achievement oriented that then, well, if you don't get fit, you don't really deserve the happiness or if you don't get the the CEO job then you know who are screw yourself you didn't hustle right so you can't be happy so there's there's always this feeling of needing to achieve something so i just want people to understand you're not just a guy with a point of view you went and became a doctor you have a phd you you've been looking and and researching and wanting to understand before we go into the book which came out in january what made you even want to pursue this research like why do you personally care so much about being in a state of more fun and joy,
0: yeah, and it's not even a perpetual state, right to clarify that up front. I think right. there are a couple of things that I can now say more discreetly, like because I don't even know that I completely knew one of the benefits of having conversations like this is you get, oh, okay, that was it, like right and so there's two one, really having a fascination for habits and behavioral science, how we undervalue hedonic tone because you know, we always, we villainize pleasure and rightfully so to some degree. Like I certainly don't believe in hedonism and, you know, especially when it doesn't have kindness and empathy attached to it, but we know that we want to enjoy the things we were doing. And so many of us have this lens of martyrdom, right? Especially if we're worn down because a lot of us serve others, right? If we're people pleasers, then we give everything away and we don't have anything left. And so if you don't create, and so this is more of the geeky science, right? If you don't create things within your habits that kind of pull you in, you know, your mental frame is passion. And I think that applies, but whatever it is in psychology, we call it valence. Like, are you enjoying that thing? And it's attracting to you. And so many of us aren't, cause we kind of, you know, we talked about it before the start, like our mental frame and our social norm is meritocracy. We kind of buy into somebody else's dream and then we're like, okay, well, I got a little trophy here and I get the next trophy. And now, yeah, and now I'm 65, right? And like Ronnie Ware and others have all warned us what's going to happen if we take that path. And so how can we devise at a smaller scale, these things that really are fun, you know, whatever that is. The other for you, because it is, that's another unique thing, right? Like in the West, we've said fun is anything that's high arousal, like going to Burning Man or whatever. That's what we're kind of constantly fed. But as you know, from the book, like Jeannie say of Stanford and others, self-care for my wife, getting in, engrossed in a great book at the pool. That's just as fun for her exactly. as me going to rage against the machine. But yet, for what, uh, I don't know how to have fun. Yeah, you do. You just succumb to the marketing of what you think fun is, and you really should own it. The other important piece, and it really is why I started this journey was this illumination, this, this work comes from Dr. Iris Mass out of Cal, but it's now in the zeitgeist. And we talk about it as toxic positivity now, right? Now it even has a common name. because But in 2016, we weren't talking about it as much. And that is, if you're always chasing this ideal, these curated lives that you see, and the motivation doesn't hit, that creates dissonance. And now we know that that dissonance is actually quite powerful. It starts to seep in your identity. Like, I'm not where I want to be. You start to displace energy on that rumination instead of actually taking action, and it's leading to real clinical outcomes. You know, clinical anxiety and clinical depression, and that's certainly where I was because things had been going pretty well. And so, long story short, because I get to it right at the beginning of the book, I, I lost my younger brother, and that really knocked me on my butt. But I was so prescribed right to good vibes only. I was trying to will myself out of a time that where it was really appropriate to mourn a significant change.
1: It's just like music. I mean, it's so beautiful and these are such important things that you're saying. And you're saying them all so well, right? Like Uh, you're not omitting anything. And that is so important. And I'm so sorry that you lost your brother. That is my it's just me and my sister. We don't have any other siblings, and we're so close. And my parents got divorced, and it's the two of us against the world. And I mean, I can't even imagine. I, I think about that sometimes it crosses my mind. And um it's extremely painful. And it's so beautiful what you said. And for anybody who's had any kind of trauma or any kind of displeasure, it is fascinating what you what you called out right away that like this isn't something you're supposed to sustain at every moment. And it is so I didn't even think about it. Is everywhere and it's exhausting. This false notion that there's good vibes only as if that's part of the human experience and it's not. So let me ask you it this way then. What is an appropriate amount of good vibes? Because there's the other side where people just get caught in this automatic program of these negative subconscious habitual thoughts and they're miserable for no reason. Do you know what I mean? Like there's that part too. And so you were talking about something really significant and then yeah. there's other things that can still bum you out, right? It, it can still bum you out to get a flat tire and it can still ruin your day if, if you, you wanted the meeting to go well and it didn't. Like, I'm not saying that's inappropriate to feel upset about either, but there's a level at which people can look for the evidence of why things are horrible all the time. And like, there that seems egregious too. So what do you think now, because you're the doctor, I'm not, <laughs> what, what do you think we should sort of point toward as a compass of like what is within reason in the human experience, how much good vibes could we maybe have and how much is appropriate to where if you're feeling less than that, you might be thinking too negative. Do you know what I mean? Like what what is appropriate, do you think?
0: Yeah, so there's a couple ways to unpack that. One, I mean, you know, if you have organized your life in a way where you're in a groove and you're enjoying your whole week, like that's great, right? You know, I think it's just, Making sure that you have the emotional flexibility when you get the flat tire that like your world doesn't fall apart. Right. Right. So valuing wanting to be happy and really, you know, especially for folks that are really good at mindfulness, I'm kind of in the mid state of my practice there, but you know, the folks that are masters, right. Like they can literally let a fly land on their nose <laughs> because they're so in it. Right. And so for those people, great because we have this affect is the physiological response. Right. And then we can interpret that with emotion, not to get too geeky in the neuroscience. All I'm suggesting is there are people, but I want to give you some of the science, right? So with regards to leisure, this work comes actually in your backyard from Dr. Cassie Holmes out of UCLA. She calls it the Goldilocks spot. It's about two to five hours of time outside of work. So two hours under two hours, we tend to not show up the next day with our batteries recharged. Like we really should be able to find within 24 hours About two, even if it's through the lens of having to do something, I mean, you have three small kids, you know, like you might have to be with them, but can you use your agency and autonomy to create, you know, an activity in that space where you're enjoying your time too, instead of, you know, like I see so many parents habitually just take their kids to the park because that's passive leisure, right? They can sit on Instagram. And so there's that. And then she suggests that people that are really not doing anything productive after five hours you'll start to get that negative rumination again. You know, like I'm not being productive and so it can kind of go sideways. So from a quantitative science standpoint, the Goldilocks spot is two to five hours. With regards to what you're doing, because I interviewed a lot of really busy executives, just like who are the ones that are able to crush it and are still having fun, you know, have transition rituals between work and life. Those are the ones that are able to, Kind of understand what are the things that they want to do. And I know you preach about this quite a bit too, so that all of the things that they're doing in their day are invigorating, right? And so we still need sleep. We still need downtime. We still need our landing gear, but it doesn't mean that you can have what I call a bias towards fun. You just understand that there are going to be bad things and you accept that too. And, you know, so we're hearing a lot about emotional flexibility. Like, as long as you're not always expecting everything to go your way, then you have a certain amount of resilience. Did that answer?
1: I think that's really helpful. I mean, all yeah. of this is like news to me. I don't know any of <laughs> these things. So that they're all important to like chip away at it. And, and I think that that's really, it's really eye-opening. And you talk in the book about these four quadrants of the play model. And I'm like, oh my God, he can break down play and make it a science. <laughs> Explain to everybody what that is and how we can understand that.
0: Yeah. So- The easiest way to explain it is just, do you like the things that you're doing or you don't, right? And so that four quadrant model allows you to look at the things that you do throughout your week. And a lot of people are illuminated by just kind of being mindful. It's really the only unfun exercise in the book. Although I ask you to approach it with some curiosity to make it playful, but any kind of auditing is a requirement so that you can understand how you're spending your time. And most people will find like, wow, okay, there's this pocket on Wednesday where I'm just so tired. I plop down on the couch and I'm not, you know, it's just a poor use. Or again, you know, for parents, that thing, like I have this weekly date with my kids, but I just take them to the park and sit. I don't remember a single thing from there because it's not enjoyable for me. For some folks it is, right? And so that's what was the challenge of writing the book is like some things that are sound horrible to some people will sound fun. So you're going to need to figure out what that is for you. But using the play model, you can kind of say, okay, these are the things I want to do. And these are the things I don't. And then the the bottom axis is really the energy expenditure. So when you're enjoying things that don't take a lot of energy, your mind's not wandering. So we know people that are able to do that well, You know, mindfully playing with your kids, people that have pets, right? That's been in the news a lot lately. Just any sort of hobby, making sure that you're connecting with friends so that you're getting that oxytocin. All of those things are fairly easy to do and that you find enjoyable, um, land in the pleasing quadrant. And so, sorry, I kind of jumped in the middle. So, play stands for pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding. And the way I described it, pleasing and living are things that we find fun to do. And agonizing and yielding are things that we don't enjoy doing. And so, we've just been talking about things that would fall in the pleasing quadrant. The living quadrant are really those things that we put In our schedule that lead to betterment, some level of mastery, a spiritual practice like we both are nodding to, our mindfulness practice. Those things that are kind of hard, you know, that often will get us into flow because we're dancing between our mastery of that skill and and not being bored because you know it's not invigorating, it's not challenging us a little bit. For some, that's going to be connection with nature. Some, it's going to be spiritual practice. Some, it's going to be what I call edge work. You know, doing extreme sports or you know really challenging yourself physically. But those are things that light us up and we know lead to betterment. Everything that falls below that tends to be depleting. And to your point, we've already talked about it. Some of those things we're going to have to do because a happenstance or we don't like doing them, but we're going to have to. But the yielding category, which is things that don't take a lot of energy and that don't really fill us up are the most insidious because they don't really encode any rich memory in our mind. We don't even remember doing them. So we're like, oh, I don't waste that much time until you get mindful of how you spend your week. And you're like, oh, you know, I am wasting a little bit more time than I want. And kind of an entry exercise to anyone that doesn't believe that. I'm like, hey, just look at, you know, your health meter on your iPhone or Android. And tell me how much time you're spending on your apps.
1: No, say it in. So, right? Yeah, it's horribly depressing. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you this because you kind of alluded to it at the beginning where we kind of, demonize fun a little bit. And so as you're talking, I'm like, all right, I want to hear the compelling scientific evidence, why it's valuable to our life really, because the amount of resistance that people have to this, to actually go having fun, the amount of shame people feel like, who am I to go have fun? I mean, I'll give you an example, which is My husband was the breadwinner. He's an attorney. And then my podcast took off and we really didn't see that coming, but it, it just became as, you know, I write books, I do this, I do conferences and it's like a whole thing. And so I have this badge of honor of like, I'm a mother of three. I run a very big business and I don't take lunch dates. I'm not a lady who lunches. And it's almost like, why is that cool? who are you proving that to? Do you want an award for the most busiest, least oxytocin? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what what do you want? And when you just said that, I was like, that's disgusting. Like, I'm going to look back and say, oh my gosh, like you couldn't make time for friends. You couldn't make time to walk. You couldn't make time to do something that's not quote unquote productive. And I can feel in myself like, no, in the middle of the day, I'm not going to go do blah, 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 blah. Cause it's the work day. And then my kids come home and I got to be a good mom. So I need this book and I need you to tell me for people who are doers and high achievers, what's the scientific evidence that having fun is good for me?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot, but the one that were, and I'm sure you had this when you were creating your work, like the light bulb moment, like, oh, okay. Is a study that, you know, a lot of these studies, especially regarding productivity do get shared a lot. James Clear and Daniel Pink, like-
1: They've both been here. (laughs) Oh, nice. like both. <laughs> yeah,
0: they're great. Great people. But I'm surprised this one hasn't been talked about more because it's got a huge sample size, which, you know, the rigor gives it a lot of credibility. It's out of MIT, Stanford and Harvard. And it's about what they've termed the hedonic flexibility principle. And so they essentially did a time use study, right? And they followed 28,000 people, how they were spending their time. And the people that were burnt out, you know, not surprisingly, were the ones that looked for poor ways to escape sort of that burnout, right? Sometimes it's called passive leisure. Sometimes it's called negative escapism. But, you know, things like, again, just getting home so depleted that you're just displacing that discomfort on social media or at its worst, things like going out and drinking because you're in so much psychological pain, right? Things that just aren't leading to betterment. The surprise came. And again, this was kind of to look at, are we truly pleasure-seeking animals? Like if we're living a really pleasurable life, will we seek out more pleasure? And they found out the opposite. So the folks that are having fun, the ones that have clear bumper rails on their work life, the ones that are able to turn off and then actually enjoy themselves and active leisure, again, pro-social behavior, all the things that we've talked about are the ones that show up with the vigor and vitality to take on the next day. So there's two humongous benefits, right? One, if you're just looking at it from a quantitative standpoint, sometimes I'll use a kind of crude mental model, but think if like you said, you're burning the candle from both ends. So you're working 60 hours a week and you're kind of just looking at units of output. And so you're able to, what you think is output the person working 40 hours a week at 60 units of output. But the person that's really enjoying themselves, they're still A-type, right? So they're hard hitting, but they're able to produce twice as much because they're actually charging their batteries at night. Is only working 40 hours a week, but is able to produce twice as much as you. Is actually now 80 units of output less time. And they're the ones having fun, ironically. And so there's that. But the other interesting thing from this study was those same people also seek out challenges. So they're the ones that want to go to the living quadrant because they now have energy, surplus energy. So they're like, okay... I don't want to just do the thing, right? So many of us high achievers like want that linear path. Like I I need all the heuristics. I need to just put on the blinders and get things done. But the people that are able to get the things done and then still enjoy themselves are like, all right, what's next? What can I do? And so that could be something hard or fun, or that could also be something harder, you know, in their professional lives. It, it's up to them, but they're the ones that realize that they have a lot more agency and control over the domain than the people that are just burnt down to a nub.
1: Well, that might actually be correct, That that's the most compelling piece to start with because you're basically <laughs> saying, you want to be more productive? You might pay people have fun. You can be more productive. They're like, okay, I'm definitely going to do it. Right. You're going to make me think I'd be more productive. Um, That's fascinating. It makes sense. You have more energy. You can take things on. You can do more with less.
0: And I think when you time block, like Nir Eyal is a mentor of mine and people are pretty familiar with these principles is that, you know, if you cap your working week, let's say you don't want to be 40 hours of work. Like there is some badge of honor. And some of us will be that way. You're going to work 50 hours a week. Well, you're going to figure out how to get those things done. The yeah. problem is with with knowledge work when you don't have boundaries when you think your time is endless and you're not being mindful of it it gets insidious and so we're seeing this in the literature more and more i think in the common vernacular you call it busy work but in the psychological literature you're calling it admin work like admin work makes you believe you're working but when you look at it critically even in large enterprise it's not moving any it doesn't add to yeah. I mean, that's the real problem, right? Is you, Oh, I'm grinding it out. Are you? Really?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Daniel Pink, he's been here a couple of times, but he talked about that the first time that like most of the things that move the needle for these big companies is when they give people this time, quote unquote off to like play and do stuff. And then they come up with so many of their best products or ideas and And then the other days where they thought they were grinding it out by checking email or working on the website, like nothing was moving. So I I have heard that. And I I wanted to ask you this next question, which, because you you rattled off a few things before, remember you said you could be in nature, you know, play with an animal, whatever. I'm just curious, based on the science, if I want to be a person who takes more time for fun and for play and wonder, is there more oxytocin for me in one thing versus another. Like if I want to get the most serotonin and the most like hit of really to feel good in my body, should I be being in service? Should I use that time to be with my friends? What scientifically will I get the most like chemical benefit from?
0: So there's some serendipity here. Cause I'm not qualified to answer that, but I just got to sit down with someone who likes the book, Paul Zach, who's really knowledgeable in this area <laughs> And I think he would tell you that you really do need human connection for that. I meant oxytocin is meant to make us feel good about social bonding, right? We study it from mothers bonding with their kids. And it's clear, again, whether it's kind of kicked off by, you know, these mirror neurons where we're feeling empathy for someone else, it's clear that that connection is required for that. And so... What does that mean? Do you have to go full extrovert? Absolutely not. But it does mean that if you are someone that has sort of starved out friendship, you might want to be a little bit more mindful about reintroducing yourself to your friends and do it at a cadence that makes sense to you. And again, my understanding, because I did make sure that I did my research, is that introverts don't necessarily not like people. It's just they don't want to be in big groups, right? So it's still that human connection. And I think my understanding is you'll get the same amount from a one-on-one. So there's one thing to feel fulfilled. And then there's another thing of making sure that you feel connected to something bigger than you. And and that's clearly important.
1: Beautiful. Thank you for that.
0: I was just gonna say one more piece of wisdom that I stole from the neuroscientist, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, that let me interview her for the book. Like, I think too, when you do that, if you have personal problems, you start to see your fit in the world. And so you can conceptualize your problems as a little bit more real and objective than this heavy weight that's holding on you. So that's a. I'm just trying to give you multiple ways to triangulate the science. Yeah. That's,
1: that's really cool. We want all the science because it makes it really <laughs> compelling. You use three words in the book and also in the title, fun, joy, and wonder. How are those three words so different for you that you wanted all of them? You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just like about fun. It wasn't just about joy. There must be significant differences between fun and joy and wonder, or at least enough difference that you were like, these are all things that you should have in a cocktail of your life. And I'm just curious, what are the differences between wonder and joy and how does wonder come into our lives?
0: Yeah. So when you write these, you sort of have to add your definition. I meant these words are all owned by us. But to answer your question, fun is really that action orientation, the fact that you have control over how you can spend a considerable amount of your time. So when you're having fun, you're actually engaging in that activity in a pleasurable way, right? Where what we call in psychology, we're on the positive side of valence. Joy is really the output of that because you can be in a joyful state. So you're trying to attract joy through these fun activities, juxtaposed to happiness where we've sort of now made that this activity and evaluation, right? Am I happy? But some people will look at happiness and joy, you know, as the same word. So um, certainly, you know, someone gets confused. That might be just because that's how you hold happiness and joy in your head. For me, because happiness is so used in psychology, I really wanted to juxtapose it to more pedestrian words. The way I describe wonder is that thing that takes you out of that emotional state, but we need to do fun things or hard stuff for that to happen. So even though we're premeditated and we're like, Oh, okay. You know, it's really hard to plan moments of awe and wonder. You can certainly stack the deck in your favor. And so what are you doing to be able to attract those things for some, again, it's going to be, I'm going to go into some sort of practice of mindfulness because that certainly ups the propensity for that potentially happening. For others, it might be nature because if you find that wonder in it, but it's really disassociating yourself from your ego and realizing, wow, I'm connected to something much bigger. You know, I even find folks that will find it in technology. Like they'll be talking to someone, you know, on the other side of the world and just like, wait, how is all of this happening? Like, how am I able to feel this connection with someone through the sky, essentially? So where you find it is going to be, again, unique to you. But to answer your question, how it's different from joy and fun, it it transcends valence, right? You're just really immersed in something so wonderful and so mysterious that it makes you realize like there might be a lot more out there and it, it opens the mind.
1: I think that's my favorite one, because I think, you know, you use the word a few times, transcendence, transcending the limited plane, or, you know, just this feeling of what's bigger, or what's more possible. Um, because I feel like brick by brick, a lot of the thoughts in our head build like a little perimeter, like a little prison. And I saw this study recently and the first part of the study, I was like, I've seen this, but the second part of the study, I didn't know. And I was just curious what you would say about it, but it was about fleas. And I'm sure you either, either you know it or you wrote it or you, whatever. <laughs> but it was about fleas and how if you put fleas in a jar, they will try to jump out. But if you put a lid on the jar, they'll only jump as high as the lid. And if you take the lid off, they won't jump higher than that. And so you can leave the lid off and they won't jump out, which I've heard that kind of thing before. I've heard it with elephants and that wasn't new. What was new is that when they have babies, the babies won't jump, that it gets passed down. And I was like, oh my God, like, I love the idea of transcendence, because I feel like so much of what makes people unhappy is this feeling of like, this isn't possible. And like, my life feels very, like, I just feel trapped in a confine of limiting beliefs. And so I'm curious what you think about that and, and how you think, we can best be in a state of transcendence and then how that applies to how we change the way we live our life.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to tiptoe because I want to make sure that, you know, that it is grounded, but then I also want to be vulnerable with you and say, because I've been giving this a lot of thought, right? I think that Our reality is built on consensus and whether that's internalized or externalized, right? I think even if you have a complete scientific mindset, and I've been trying, you know, through my own emotional growth to be more open to the mystery, as I call in the book, but I was raised by scientists. And so I do have this Sam Harris slant. But even if you believe in rigorous kind of a Western empirical thing, it's clear that you know, money's made up, right? You have to agree that we made it up so that we could get out of the hunter gatherer thing. For the most part, any sort of serious written dogma is probably made up. Maybe there's truth in it, but ultimately once someone created it, they're creating something and then same with governance, right? The fact that you and I have LLCs or whatever your entity is like that was man. Yeah. Right. And so we're living in something that we can all agree even empirically was made up. And, yeah, there are these bumper rails, like social norms and social contagion are so strong. And we're, for whatever reason, and this is really what I'm trying to unpack, it's not in the book, just to be clear so that I'm honest, is that here, especially in the United States, the headwinds are so strong, right? The EU in earnest is playing with the four-day work week and seeing the benefits, already seeing the empirical benefits. Wow. You have... France making it illegal to send emails after 5 p.m. So almost every cor- oh corporate e- email server is shut down at 5 p.m. Unless you work for like a hospital, but wow. for for any organization that doesn't need to operate, you know, just to protect the sovereignty of the, their employees. But yet we have these weird things like we'll go off on vacation and we'll have some status report that has no impact on the business at all. And yet we feel compelled because we're just as empathetic as anyone else in the world, but we've been conditioned, right? Like I can't let down my fellow employees. This has to get done. And so instead of having each other's backs and like protecting our, you know, instead we become these martyrs, right? We essentially work in more beautiful backyards, which is still just working instead of doing the things we need to do for our own well-being. And so are these things passed down biologically? There is some proof. I've seen the same studies, which is really a shame. I'm going to butcher the title, The Body Hold the Score. That's a really good argument for that. He brings up some pretty compelling science that these things are in some way a lot more insidious than that. We can't just will them out, you know, that they do kind of pass down, which is unfortunate, but also a stronger call, right? For us to do the right things. Yeah. And then you even have, you know, I think I named dropped him already, but you even have Sam Harris, who's like this staunch atheist, knowing that you can do this reprogramming. If you get in that space that none of us understand, he'll be the first to admit he doesn't understand it either. And so it comes back down to if we flex our free will, can we make a positive impact? And I wholeheartedly believe that. Did that answer your question? Yeah. And
1: it's all just so interesting. We could talk about it forever and forever and always, and, and for whatever it's worth. I went to Jerusalem for two weeks after college and I grew up totally secular, but I'm Jewish, but like I was just on a trip and I stayed for three years and I studied Kabbalah and mysticism and for whatever it's worth, my rabbi always says that very often when he sits down with someone who's an atheist and they actually talk about his definition of this oneness, this quantum field, this one energetic plane, everyone's like, well, I agree with that. It's just, you know, it's like in Alaska, they have 70 words for snow. They don't say it's snowing. They say it's sleet, it's sledge, it's sludge. It's, it's like, the, you can't just say it's snowing because it's always snowing, right? So it's like, there's so many words for God or the divine that like, there's a lot of people who wouldn't agree that we're not talking about the same thing. But I do think that there's so much of a mystery that everybody is talking about and whatever that is, consciousness, the field, like, that everybody, one way or another, you get down to it, they go, well, that, that's the thing. I don't know what it, but like, yeah, that's it. Like, that's it. Whatever that is, you know, that's what Einstein's talking about. That's the great unifier. That's the great unifier. And it's just fascinating to play with and talk about. But speaking of science, I've been studying this for a little while. And, you know, the observer effect, it's like just so fascinating because this electron is unpredictable because the observer has some relationship to what happens. It doesn't make any sense. And yet I do get it. The perception has a lot to do with the reality we see. And that's the part that's it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. And so I have been buying into what you've, you know, cause I feel like we're getting close, even folks that have a traditional physics background, but I'm not smart enough to talk in that area so, me like, I, I'm i watching it from the <laughs> sidelines. That's a great way f- for me to develop my wonder right now because I'm like, what the? And, like, it's getting smarter, right? You watch something like What the Bleep Do We Know? And it's like, there's some quasi-science and real science. And you're like, what? Yeah, there's how, a little, little know, bit of
1: liberty, a little yeah. liberty there. But there's some stuff there that's there. There's like but, And now it's stuff. coming
0: out and the real stuff is emerging. So, to kind of get off and off-ramp, but still, it's adjacent, I think what I do have a firmer understanding and where I was going with regards to us making meaning of the world and creating these devices so that we have this consensus reality that we live in. Yeah. Once you understand that, that to some degree, living by your passion, figuring out your place, that's you making meaning of the world. Right. And so to some degree that is malleable you. And I think those are some of the elements that you help people play with. And that's important to know that you probably have a lot more creative license to make those things happen, right? And so that's an important conversation. Then what gets interesting is I think what we just discussed, you know, the way that there is this oneness is immutable and laughs at us trying to create dogma and make a meaning and devise these little things and wear our costumes and wear our identities, right? They're going to be helpful, but they also think it's funny. And so once you start retreating from having to make sense, But we have to do it. That's part of emotional growth and maturity. You know, we have to make sense of the world. And to some degree, we put our own lens on that. But then once you're able to start peeling that back, because you feel psychological safety and physical safety, it gets really fun because there's a lot out there we don't need to give terms to. I agree.
1: And I love what you're saying. You know, Adam Grant is a friend. He's been here a few times. And he said to me, he's like, experts have no fun. Like, experts have one answer. How boring is that? He's like, "Scientists." They don't want to be experts. They want to be beginners because the whole fun, like you're just saying, is in the mystery, right? Once you have an answer, where do you go from there? There's nothing else to look at, right? And so Einstein, he died with tons of questions and that is the beauty. And and we we got to this place from talking about wonder. And I think that in of itself, I just think that the, the amygdala, like the brain, it wants certainty so bad that it feels like it's allergic to wonder in a way, although there's a part of us that loves wonder. Like you don't really want all the answers. You want to feel like there's something I don't get. And I kind of can like look at the stars and just feel like how much bigger it is than my brain can compute. It feels good actually. And there's this juxtaposition of this part of us, this fight or flight part. That's like, if I don't know, and there's anything uncertain or unknown, I'm unsafe. And that's what you're saying. And that kind of gets in our way sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's twofold. I agree with what you just said. And then also, it's the ability for us to invite it in. When we invite it in, when we invite it in that connection, we feel safe. So the amygdala kind of calms down. But unfortunately, especially now more than ever, right, in this knowledge economy, this attention economy that we live in, it's being bombarded at us. So we need heuristics and we need algorithms just to be able to survive, right? I need to know my way my kid's way to school so I can get there, you know, in the right amount of time. I need to know how to do my work so that the day actually finishes because I'm already feeling overwhelmed. And so we shut down incoming information because there's this deluge of man-made information and it's overwhelming to everybody or most people at least.
1: Yeah. So it speaks to to something more tactical that I think will help with the overwhelm. The next question I was going to ask you is part of what I love about the book is you're there with a solution to how this can become a habit. And I think what a lot of us do is it's all or nothing. So many people, January 1st, they have all these goals. And by February 1st, nobody's going to the gym because they're like, well, I couldn't do cardio, plus hit plus boxing, plus yoga. So I just said, forget the whole thing. And James Clear is saying, no, no, if you make tiny little changes, you are going to have a giant shift in your future. Like it's just, you won't wind up in the same destination. So when it comes to this conversation, I feel like there's a lot of people who are going to say, well, this is compelling. You know, like from a scientific level alone, I should have more fun and joy and wonder in my life. But how the hell do I go from where I am now, which is not much. And all I'm doing for quote unquote fun is scrolling Instagram, right? Which we just talked about how there's nothing really there, there. What are some of the small and efficient habits that we can start to plug into our days starting right when we finish this episode that people can can start to create that in their life?
0: Yeah. So first you want to start by making space. It's an unfortunate first step, but you do need to sort of be mindful of how you're spending your time because the last thing we want to do is prescribe more fun to an already busy schedule. Like, oh, great. I have one more thing to do on my to-do list. So it's really being mindful of where you can find two or three hours in your week That aren't working for you. So you can create the space to sort of play with you know the things that you want to reintegrate. And even if you can't do that, how can you change? Generally, we're only talking about three variables, right? The way you're doing something, you know, hopefully you can completely change the activity. But if you can't, like, is there a way to look at it as an anthropologist and potentially do it in a more fun manner or or approach it something that's more enjoyable for you? The other is the people you're doing it with. Like if you have a friendship of convenience that you're just kind of like, why don't you reinvite that fun friend, someone that you know, when you leave your time with them, you're actually invigorated and say, so like, uh, I let them dump on me again or the space that you're doing it in. So for some of us that are like stuck in that work cycle, is there a way to create an environment that's more pleasurable for you so that you're experiencing what it's like to be in a space that is more fulfilling? But hopefully you can integrate in activities that you like. And so, you know, along with doing that time audit, like just write down on a piece of paper, what are the things that you would like to be doing and try to reintegrate those, not just like a one-time thing, try to do it for two to three weeks. Cause that's what it takes so that you're showing up the next day and going, okay, after three weeks, I'm doing a lot better the next day, you know, when I'm actually taking some time off the table for myself. What's unfortunate is when people just do it the first week, especially like I'll see, you know what? I've wanted to play the guitar for so long. And like, so they'll jump on something like that as an example. And that first week is awful because they're just spending the whole time like reacquainting themselves with that long lost hobby. So it does require, you know, there are going to be some eggs broken along the way, but I think as kind of a discreet sort of piece of advice, create some space and then figure out how you can reintegrate things that you enjoy and then see how you feel a couple of weeks later. And luckily, what happens is that nine times out of 10, you'll start to see this upward spiral like, oh, wow, okay. So if I actually time block and create these transition rituals, I'm getting more done during the day. And I'm actually enjoying myself once work is done. Let's keep playing with this. Then you find your balance. Cause again, it's not meant to be like, oh, and now I'm going to quit my job and, you know, yeah. join Chip Connolly and go to every music festival. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay so so here's my next question which is there are certain things that I tell myself I'm going to start doing and I do them like I just bought tickets for my family to go to a play this weekend and that feels like really fun productive yummy time and I made a brunch date with my girlfriends from when I was like in my 20s I'm like we hardly see each other so they're coming over on Sunday and I intentionally decided based on this kind of conversation in your book like make time for that so I did that however In my mind, when I write down the thing that really will make me feel like good, I always write down, take a walk. That's always the first thing I write down. And Mike, come hell or high water, I don't do it. And I love where I live. We live in Brentwood in the mountains. It's really pretty. There's like deer. And there's like, if you walk down like 10 houses, this person has horses. And it's like, there's all the reasons to want to walk. And I'm asking because here's the thing. It's like, there is something in our brains. We're already trending to not do stuff. And even if we write it down or we whatever, make the time, there's this resistance to doing new behavior. And it annoys me to no end because every day I'm like, oh, sometime today. So I make the time on the calendar to take the walk. I do. And then the day goes by and for whatever reason, and then I go, oh my God, it's been three weeks and I haven't taken a walk. And I'm like, what is the psychological thing that's happening? And how can I be bigger than my brain? Like, how can I overrule if there's a cortisol, if there's something in there that's like, no, 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 no walk. Instead, volunteer for your daughter's school. That's what I did this week. Or instead, call your mom. That's what I did. Literally, I can give you something that I did instead with that free space. That's why I didn't walk. And today's Friday and I went another week without the walk. And I know my brain's going to do that to me again. So what is my brain doing that it won't let me change habit? And what can I do to get ahead of it?
0: Well, we know that habituated behavior is hard to change. Again, that's why I gave the three week, right? But that's not going to help you in this situation. I think what I did, because I found myself in a similar situation, is a tool that I write about in the book, is I bundled it with meetings at first, because I wasn't doing it either and I needed to do it. And so I indicated to these individuals and asked them if they wanted to do it. Some took me up, some didn't. And so that meeting was a walking meeting. I love that. I and feel then like when...
1: everyone who's here hearing us is actually gonna do this. Is that that's that makes sense?
0: Yeah, and now I'm doing it all the time. And you know, it's always welcomed with the folks that are like, Yes, okay. And to the extent that this amazing comp- startup in San Francisco called Fundamentals, I mentioned it and he's like want to not just do a walk? Should we like plan a hike? And I was like, okay, that's a little bit more sophisticated than I thought, because now we have drive time and stuff, but he's going to go on a hike in the Bay Area and I'm going to go on a hike here and and we're going to do a one-hour meeting. This is new for me because we'll see if our internet holds out. I I live in an area where unfortunately beautiful North Carolina, but there's cell towers everywhere. So I'm not really that concerned.
1: So what you're really saying is bridge like what you're doing instead with what you want to do and put them together?
0: Yeah, to start it, I'll say a couple of things here. So especially since it sounds like you've had James on, I think he calls this habit stacking. I approach it with different science. So I call it activity bundling, but both of the principles would apply, right? Like if you want to get a a habit done, this is more James than me, but you know, you stack them together, right? So you're essentially stacking what you want to do with something that you know is going to get done. And like, you know, maybe do it with Emma. Like one, you know, like a friendly, you know, like.
1: Emma uh, walks constantly, by the way. All she does is walk. (laughs) It's funny you wrote that up. That's all she does. Yeah, I could do it with her. Okay, go ahead.
0: So the other is just, then once you get used to it, then you can start to habituate the behavior because I'm like, okay, I'm already walking. Or maybe you just keep it you know, again, everyone is so different. Like for me now I do want some solitude in nature before I didn't. Cause I was so overclocked, especially when we moved here from the Bay area to North Carolina, like walking alone in nature, it's <laughs> just like too overwhelming for me. So the other, this is kind of adjacent, but just so people look it up. Cause I love it. And I think this is, you know, is my own particular slant. Like if you're trying any sort of new habit, this wouldn't apply because I feel like being in nature is already like 90% of what I'm about to describe, but I love this advice from Terry Cruz, who's already like a workout fanatic, right? So here's the guy that was already wanted, so motivated to work out, but he started going to the gym just to have fun because he knew like to habituate that behavior because working out even for the anointed like him isn't necessarily a fun activity. So he would go there and just like read his favorite magazine and hang out and like chit chat with That's fun people. Hilarious. And then once he was like, okay, the gym's a fun place, then he tacked on, the thing that he wanted to do. So that's, that's my particular slant where you can use fun to create a habit that you want to do.
1: I think it's fascinating because this is really like probably the conversation we all have to have in general, where it's like, as opposed to just letting your day take you on a ride, you, you intentionally live your day. And that's kind of what, you know, you said her name before Bronnie Ware, but like Daniel Pink's newest book is also about that. It's like you get to the end of your days and you're like, wait, how did I spend my time? Like, we can be so much more deliberate. And this is such an important book. And I love that you wrote it, especially from this place, because I do think there's a lot of toxic positivity. And when you read the cover of the book, you might be like, oh, this is just some like feel good. And it's like, no, it really helps you by the end of the book. That knowledge turns into power and you start to say, okay, I can actually have a different outcome. And so I'm just curious for you, because we're also such overachievers, what for you would make your reader successful with this book? Like if they could change one thing or if they understood things or if they completely changed their life, like how does that stack up for you? What was the intention that the reader walks away and they're successful if what?
0: That's a great question. I don't know that I've been asked it that way. So I appreciate it because I think as you know, when we work for publishers, like they start to, I wrote it a couple of different ways, you know, oh, and it, you need a model, right? Like the play model was fun. And I had written, you know, a light blog post on it before, but it's like, they need something to remember. And because the, the book was a lot more existential, And I think for people that really do want to make an impact, because it's clear that folks that want a life of whimsy aren't really resonating with the book. Some of my negative reviews are like, I already live a fun life. And because the book, you know, then you didn't need the book. Why did you pick it up?
1: (laughs) I'm so happy, but I took the time to write a negative review. Don't you see how happy I am?
0: Yeah, it's wild. But I think where it's really hitting are folks that are trying to make an impact. Like the last chapter, and this was by design, is highlighting folks that are change makers that are in really challenging areas, you know, really trying to make an impact and how important it is to at least enjoy some of your time. Like, you know, we always talk about good mental hygiene, being able to hold two different ideas at the same time. And so to answer your question, it's the people that really want to live a meaningful life, but are a little bit lost. And to just gently guide them back into a joyful life so that they realize that those two can coexist because so many of us are in pain, especially here in the U S there are a lot of headwinds dragging us out. And so that have some science to have some anecdotes to see other people that are doing it. Well, you know, like I don't know if you remember the gentleman out of San Luis Obispo, there are entrepreneurs that are crushing it and still having a great time. And the fact it's not going to erode your productivity. So I don't want to villainize you for deriving your self-worth from being productive, but if that is your goal, there are some better ways to go about it and ways that will make your life a lot more fun too.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's so beautiful. I think about Dan Buettner's research and the blue zones. And I think about these people who they don't have the same average death time. They don't have the same lifestyle as people in the U S who are so focused on work, like They're living into their hundreds and you say, why? And it's like, well, actually they're working. They do work. They work until they're like 103. So it's not that they don't work. It's that they have built in a level of these other things, like the transcendence. Most of those people meditate or pray. They have community that oxytocin is up, you know? And so, you know, for the, those people who are listening who are like, yeah, well, I want more, you know, compelling evidence. It's like the people who live the longest in this world that we know of are doing all the things that you and I talked about. And they're also eating mostly plant-based, <laughs> but they're also eating meat, they are. And Dan even says, it's the reduction of inflammation that comes from the lifestyle more than even the food, right? Yeah. So it's, it's all these things and enjoying it. And then, oh my gosh, people don't have to just be 76 years old and quitting work and then that's the average age of death. That, that There's something we have to crack. And I think your book is making a big dent.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I think it goes back to that meaning making, right? Like we're driven by our own design. We've all constructed our own thing that we're, we're shooting for, right? Which is great because I think, again, that's part of emotional maturity. But sometimes you need to take a step back and go, okay, I know my why. I've got that figured out, you know, depending where you are on the journey of life. But what am I willing to give up for it? And a lot of us don't ask that second question because some of us are giving up too much. And when we do give up too much, the why falls off anyways, then it was all for naught, And that's just unfortunate. So again, to circle back and maybe say it more concisely, like I really, especially the folks that want to make an impact, I want them to be able to succeed. And so again, whether you want to call it a radical course correction or not, I think it's just being reminded that you're meant to live your life too, you know?
1: That's really beautiful. I love that the people you want to serve are the people who are in service. And it is amazing that I said to my husband the other day, I'm like, you know, six years ago when I started this podcast in my closet and our youngest was 10 days old, if you would have told me, well, the net net is that in order to have this amount of impact that you're having and in order to make the money that you you're gonna go on to make, you're going to spend all these hours every day looking at these kinds of things and running a team. And I would have said, oh no, no, I don't want that. You know what I mean? (laughs) But, But going into it, I came from like purpose and impact. And I do think that there are ways that if we just cultivate a little bit more of what you talk about in this book, we can show up, like you said earlier on this conversation we can show up with even more energy and we can get more done with less time. And all of that feels so right. So tell everybody where they can buy the book and where they can follow along.
0: Oh, thank you so much. So the book's available anywhere you enjoy purchasing books, obviously Amazon, but support your local bookstore if you're please, up for that.
1: indie books, yeah. please, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and I write about the science of fun at uh, michaelrucker.com.
1: You know what I'm going to say to you, Mike? I've never done this before, but do you have a local or... Do you have a favorite indie bookstore?
0: Yes, I'll I'll send you the link for that so you can put it in the show notes.
1: That's what we're going to do. So you guys will be able to go wherever you want, but you will have an indie bookstore to support if you want. And where can people find you or follow along like social media or newsletter? Just tell them where they can go find you.
0: Yeah, so Twitter, Perform Better, Instagram, The Wonder of Fun. And my website is again, michaelrucker.com.
1: So good. Thank you so much for the conversation and for all the work that led you to the conversation. It was really nice to talk to you.
0: Likewise, Kathy, thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, have a great week and hope you have fun. (laughs) (laughs) I love talking with Mike and it's just so much fun since the conversation we talked about, you know, the struggles, like getting into like just having a daily walk. And, And so finally I'm like doing that. And I wanted to share that lately. It's amazing how I've been making the time to do things that actually give me that sense of pleasure and it's changed my whole life. Like I already thought I was able to manifest some pretty beautiful moments, but I've just completely upped my game because I've actually made the space to have the things in my life that make me feel really joyful. It's so good and I'm, I'm going to be sticking to it. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, the folks that are having fun are the ones who show up with vigor and vitality to take on the next day. Number two, if we flex our free will, we can make a positive impact. Number three, living by your passion and figuring out your place is how you make meaning of the world. You have a lot more creative license than you think to make those things happen. Number four, there's a part of us that loves wonder. You don't really want all the answers. You want to feel like there's something bigger out there than your brain can compute. Number five, Be mindful of how you're spending your time. Intentionally live your day. Create the space to play with the things that you enjoy and want to reintegrate into your life. Use fun to create a habit that you actually want to do. Number six, you can be a change maker and make an impact and still enjoy your time. A meaningful life and a joyful life can coexist. And number seven, you're meant to live your life also. Thank you guys so much for listening. It blows my mind that six and a half years later, we are here. We have built this amazing community and it would not have been possible without you. Thank you. Thank you so much. There are so many good episodes coming out. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're loving the show, please leave us a review. It means so much to have you leave us a review. And maybe you can send this episode to somebody who you think might be benefiting from hearing all of the things that he had to say today. If you know somebody who needs it, please go ahead, text them the link, share the link, or you can post about it on your Instagram. I love you very much. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you very soon.